Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for joining me for tonight's talk. My name is Adam Wood, and I'm the author of Swanson, The Life and Times of a Victorian Detective. And over the next uh, few weeks, I'm going to be doing a series of talks on cases for um, Swanson's career. But tonight, I thought I'd start with a background about the man himself, where he came from, and how he rose through the uh, ranks. So, um, at the, if you do have any questions, please do type them um, in the comments below, and I'll answer uh, at the end of the talk. Thank you. Now, Donald Swanson is probably best known as a detective in charge of the Jack the Ripper case from Scotland Yard, and I'll talk about that later in brief. But in fact, he had a magnificent 35-year career, starting as a bobby on the beat, and eventually rising to the rank of superintendent at the CID at Scotland Yard, the top detective in the country. When I started writing my biography of Swanson several years ago, I was determined to include as much about his early life as possible. Because it really annoys me when you read a book about a famous policeman, and after stating where and when they were born, halfway half a page later he's already joined the Metropolitan Police. So I was determined to discover as much as I could of On Swanson's childhood in Thurso, in the far north of Scotland. So with that in mind, let's take a look at his early years. As I wanted to include information on Swanson's early days, I made arrangements to visit Thurzo to see what I could find. Thankfully, my request for help on the Thurzo Heritage Society Facebook page was seen by local historian Alan McIver, who offered access to his fantastic collection of material. So I'm pleased to say we have a very full picture of Swanson's life in Caithness before he left for London at the age of 19. And this obviously isn't Donald behind me here, that would be ridiculous. He didn't have a moustache at that time. Donald Sutherland Swanson was born to John and Mary, the youngest of seven children. His parents had married on Christmas Day 1828. John was a brewer and distiller, operating from various locations around Cape Ness. Until the early 1840s, when he took up the tenancy at the small distillery at Guise. And this is the ruins of Guise Distillery and Farmhouse behind me. After the family had moved to the Guise Distillery, two more sons were born, James in 1844 and Donald on the 12th of August, 1848. Four months before Donald was born, his father was involved in a terrible accident at the distillery when his sleeve was caught in machinery and he was pulled in, losing an arm. Newspaper reports stated he was not expected to survive but in fact, John recovered and would live a further 31 years. But being severely injured meant that John would rely heavily on the eldest son, John Jr. And this arrangement continued for three years, but John Jr. left Caithness and joined the City of London Police in 1851. And the family was forced to abandon Guise and move seven miles north to Thurzo. They rented a house on Durness Street, number 30, and this would in fact be their home for more than 60 years. Although we're not 100% certain, we believe that number 30 was the house shown here next to the arch entrances. This picture shows Donald fishing with his father on the River Thurzo in front of the old Thurzo Bridge. He's around eight or nine here, and this is the youngest photograph of him we've found so far. You can see in the photo that John's left arm is missing, a reminder of the accident at Guise. At the age of 10 in 1858, Donald was sent to the parish school on Marketplace in Thurzo. The building still stands today, a private residence named Nicole. It's that house on the far right there. At this time, it was not compulsory for children to be sent to school with many parents preferring to keep them at home to help with chores. And the fact that John and Mary paid for their youngest son to go to school shows how keen they were for him to have an education. The head teacher was 27-year-old Robert Mickle, who lived on the premises with his wife Elizabeth. He would later be instrumental in Donald's relocation to London. The young Swanson proved to be an exceptional pupil. At the Caithness Association's examinations, of pupils from across the parish, 
held at Thurzo in May 1860, he achieved first place out of 15 competitors in the under 12 categories for arithmetic, geography and scripture history. And it's not known exactly when Donald first attended his next school, the Miller Institution, but his name appears on pupil lists from 1863, alongside classmates such as Daniel and James Begg, and Angus Mackay, and George Innes. One famous attendee was William Smith, founder of the Boys Brigade. Again, Donald distinguished himself at the Caveness Association examination for 1864, he secured first place in grammar, geography, and Bible history. By this time approaching his 16th birthday, Donald became a pupil teacher at the Miller, still receiving an education while at the same time assisting the head teacher. Although not formally qualified, pupil teachers received on-the-job training from head teachers, usually an hour in the morning and 30 minutes at the end of the school day, and earned a salary of £10 per annum in his first year. Now Donald would probably have taught the younger pupils in the infant department with the head teacher teaching the older pupils. Here he is with his parents at the time dressed in his schoolmaster robes. In most cases a pupil teacher would comp complete their five-year apprenticeship and become employed as assistant teachers or move to a training college to become fully certified. However, Donald secured a position as second master at the Miller late in 1866, aged just 18. But he would not teach for long, in fact, just nine months. Disillusioned with his prospects, in the summer of 1867, he decided to end his fledgling teaching career and find work in London. The fact that his sisters Margaret and Mary lived in the capital with their English husbands no doubt made Donald's decision easier and he would in fact initially live with Mary and her family. Although the railway was rapidly expanding across the country, it wasn't until July 1874 that the train first arrived in Thurzo. Anyone wanting to leave the town in the 1860s would have to endure a 17-hour stagecoach journey to Inverness, from where a train to the south could be taken. I wonder what went through Donald's mind during that journey he left behind a small town full of friends and family, a place where doors could be left unlocked and everybody knew one another's name. And when he stepped off the train at London's King's Cross the following day, things were no doubt very different. He began working as a general clerk for a firm of commission merchants at Catherine Court, shown here. The owner, Scotch-born John Mickle, had apparently known of Swanson for many years and was probably related to his former teacher at Thurzo, Robert Mickle. And it's likely that when Swanson decided to leave Thurzo, employment was found for him in his extended network. Here's a photo of Swanson from that time. It has to be said that the life of a clerk in the city was monotonous. Being required to possess few skills other than the ability to read and write, a clerk in Swanson's position would be expected to spend nine hours a day, six days a week, preparing receipts, invoices and correspondence, where every letter was written, copied and filed by hand. The pay was a standard 25 shillings per week, paid quarterly. After nine months, in March 1868, John Mickle decided to close the company. He was at that time 56 years old. Giving up business meant a well-earned rest for him, but a dilemma for Donald Swanson. Should he return home to Thurzo and take up another teaching role or seek other employment in London? The answer came on 20th of March, when, on looking through the situations vacant classified in the Daily Telegraph, he spotted an advertisement placed by the Metropolitan Police seeking candidates in response to a year-long wave of terrorist attacks by Irish rebels seeking home rule. No doubt thinking of his brother John's career as a police officer, Swanson saw this as a good opportunity and taking a sheet of pale blue paper headed 8 Catherine Court, dipped his pen and began to write. This is Donald Swanson's letter of application and it's now held in the National Archives. He wrote, 
I beg respectfully to offer myself with a vacancy in your establishment advertising the Daily Telegraph of today. I am now, and have been for several months past, clerk at the above address. But unfortunately for me, my employer will give up business in a few weeks, and I am thus compelled to look out for another situation. Should you, should you kindly grant me an interview, I shall be happy to furnish you with most unexceptional references as to character, education and ability. I am 19 years of age and do not so much desire a large salary as a good opening at a moderate one. Although the formal response to Swanson's application has not survived, his communication was evidently of interest to the Metropolitan Police, as at 10 o'clock on the morning of Tuesday the 31st of March 1868, he attended an interview at the Candidates Department at Scotland Yard. The initial qualifications for entry to the Metropolitan Police were few. A candidate had to be under 35 years of age and to stand a clear 5 foot 7 inches without his shoes. He had to be able to read and write and to be free from bodily complaint of strong constitution and equal to the performance of police duty. He would be examined by the, police, the Chief Surgeon of Police who would also judge his general intelligence. Obviously as an intelligent 19 year old Donald Swanson easily met these requirements. He was recorded as being five foot eight and a half inches tall with hazel eyes, dark brown hair and a dark complexion. Having passed the initial examination, Swanson was required to provide details of two respectable people who he could attest to his good behaviour, both of whom had to have known him for at least five years. He gave his brother-in-law George Gum, recorded as living at High Street Thurzo, and childhood friend James McLeod of Bradford Street. Both men reported they had known Swanson for the required five-year period, and the young Swanson had been accepted into the Metropolitan Police. But before he was ready to pound the beat, he had to undergo three weeks drill and training. Along with other recruits, he was sent to the candidate section house at Kennington Lane. We underwent a school of instruction, learning the instructions to police and how to operate an ABC machine, the form of telegraph used by the police at the time. At the end of the three week period, the recruits were sent to Scotland Yard to be affirmed by the commissioner and given their uniform which constable was required to wear at all times, even when off duty. In April 1868, Swanson was given warrant number 50282 and assigned to A Division in Westminster, being sent to King Street Station as Police Constable 331A. That's King Street behind me in the picture. King Street ran parallel to Downing Street and the station was much larger than most Metropolitan Police stations reflecting the importance of A Division. The section house, which accommodated 104 single constables, was where Swanson would live for the next two years. And if he was any doubt as to the, that his new application carried a threat of great personal danger, he was to receive an immediate reminder. He had been at King Street for less than a fortnight and was no doubt still adjusting to his new lifestyle. When on the 7th of May, Inspector Jan Daniel Bradstock was stabbed to death by a prisoner in the cell where he'd been held. Meanwhile, Swanson joined the 400 other constables who pounded the beating A Division. He seems to have found the strictness of the police difficult to cope with in those early, early days. On the 3rd of October 1868, after six months service, he was found to be absent from the section house and subsequently late for roll call, appearing 25 minutes later but out of uniform. He was fined for being in, in plain clothes without authorised leave and further cautioned for being late. In April 1869, he was cautioned for accepting a shilling from a prisoner at King Street in an attempt to procure bail. Although partially explaining his reasons, at a time when police corruption was commonplace, Swanson had shown his naivety. A year later, he was again late for roll call and climbed over the section house railings in an attempt to avoid being detected. The ruse failed and he was fined two shillings and again cautioned. Despite this, Swanson's policing skills had been noticed and less than a week after scaling the King Street railings, he was advanced second class constable and unusually was in advanced first class just eight days later. 
On the 9th of September 1870, he was transferred to North Division's Y Division, North London's Y Division rather, spent the next 15 months based at Kentish Town, a much smaller station than King Street, manned by less than 30 constables. One of these was Sergeant Frederick Aberline, with whom Swanson went undercover in July 1871 to a local theatre to investigate reports of immoral practices. Their observations resulted in an 18-month prison sentence for the proprietor. The two police officers returned to their duties but would work again together on a much higher profile case some 17 years later. Aberline would soon be promoted Detective Inspector and transferred to H Division in Whitechapel. As for Donald Swanson, on the 11th of December, aged 23, he successfully passed his sergeant examinations and was promoted Police Sergeant 71. The following day he was sent to K Division on the eastern perimeter of London, where he would remain for the next five years. Among his first cases, and among his first cases there was a heartbreaking story of child neglect. Following complaints to police by neighbours, Swanson att attended a house in Limehouse, where with a Mr. Neagle, the Stepney Union, discovered two young girls in an extremely emaciated condition. Eight-year-old Clara Wheeler was found to be in a wretched state, lying in a box covered with rags. Her sister, 10-year-old Rose, was found elsewhere in the house in a similar condition. The girls were children from the first marriage of wine porter Joseph Wheeler. His children with second wife Maria were found to be fat and healthy. Neighbours told Swanson they often saw Rose and Clara picking up potato peelings and crumbs from the street in an attempt to find nourishment. Uh, despite being severely malnourished, they were not suffering from any disease and were therefore taken immediately to Limehouse Workhouse to be properly cared for. It was reported that by the time of their parents' trial, a few weeks later, they had already gained weight from receiving proper food. The judge decided that Maria Wheeler was responsible for the girl's poor treatment and she was sentenced to a fortnight in prison with hard labour. In February 1874, the for um, Swanson was fined yet again after being seen standing outside the Lion Public House at Stepney Green with two fellow officers with his armlet off, despite being on duty. He was fined five shillings and severely reprimanded, it being recorded in police orders that he was not to be employed in any senior capacity for three months. It was the last time that he would be cautioned. It was commonplace for policemen to get to know those who run the public houses in their district. Oops, there we one moment, the projector's gone off. It seems as though my uh, my projector's packed up overheating, so it'll have to be a uh, audio only, I'm afraid. Um, where are we? It was common practice for policemen to get to know those who ran the public houses in their district, as those were meeting places for criminals, and therefore a good source of information. One of several pubs near to where Swanson was based was the British Lion on West Ham Lane, where, children, where, where landlord James Neville lived with his wife Sarah and their four children. The British Lion was also used on many occasions as the venue for coroner's inquest and Swanson would no doubt have attended to give evidence. Over the summer of 1874, the 20 year old Judah Ann Neville caught the young Scot's eye. She'd been born in East London in January 1854 and sent to a genteel boarding school and perhaps a combination of education and a family's brewing background struck a chord with Donald. On the 23rd of May 1878, he and Julia were married at the parish church in West Ham after four years of courtship. He was 29 years old and the bride 24. The couple wasted no time in starting a family. Within three months, Julia discovered she was pregnant and the couple would in fact go on to have six children in his professional life, things were also changing for Donald. While still a constable back in 1876, 
He was on a beat which took him across a bridge on the River Lee, where a blind man regularly stood seeking charity. Swanson got in the habit of chatting with the man and one day lent him half a crown towards paying his rent. This act of kindness was to be repaid, for the blind man told Swanson that a gang of criminals were meeting the following evening at a nearby public house to finalise plans of a robbery. Swanson reported this information to his superior and was instructed to visit the pub in plain clothes and monitor events. This led to him being taken off of ordinary duty and over several weeks he uncovered a large network of criminals who were eventually arrested on a number of charges. Perhaps this different style of policing appealed to him or maybe his superior officers recognised his talent. But either way Swanson applied to join the detective department. He had just turned 28 years old and served nine years as a uniformed officer. On the 12th of September 1876, he successfully completed his entrance examinations and was appointed detective sergeant. Three days later, he was transferred back to A Division, this time based at Scotland Yard. His uniform days were behind him. Now able to travel to any part of the country, unrestricted by the boundaries of any Metropolitan Police Division. Swanson was soon tasked with investigating cases of all sorts. From complex frauds to unsolved murders, such as the decomposing body of a woman found in a barrel in a cellar in Harley Street. Her identity was never established, her killer never fought. In July 1880, Swanson was entrusted with recovering the, the jewellery theft worth a quarter of a million pounds on the Countess of Bechtieve. He traced a former butler who proved to be the thief and from a single pearl found on the suspect which succeeded in tracking down and recovering almost all the jewellery. He was give, given a reward of £10,000 by the grateful Countess and earned the nickname Lucky Swanson from his jealous colleagues. Uh, I was going to show you one of the few drawings of Swanson in the national newspaper that, as you see, projectors, projector is packed up. Um, it, show, it did show uh, Swanson at the trial of Percy Lefroy Mapleton, who committed only the second murder on a train in the UK when he killed Mr. Frederick Gold on the Brighton Express in 1881. It was Swanson who arrested Lefroy after 11 days on the run. The chase for the fugitive was covered in minute detail by the press. And after Swanson burst into the lodging house room in which Lefroy had been hiding, brought him to justice, his name was catapulted into the national spotlight. The Brighton Railway murder will be the subject of my talk next week. Swanson again enjoyed a large reward, but more importantly, it was this case which brought him to the attention of the heads of the CID and newspaper reporters alike. Uh, two days after Percy Lefroy Mapleton was executed and buried in an unmarked grave in the grounds of Lewis Jail, another very different final resting place, some 600 miles away, was about to reveal a gruesome secret. A labourer working on the restoration of the mansion house owned by the, owned by the Earl of Crawford at Dunnecht near Aberdeen, noticed that turf had been disturbed at the entrance of the family tomb. He alerted the overseer of the works, who in turn told the Earl's commissioner and the police were summoned. On entering the vault, the party saw the flag, the Caithness flagstone directly over the steps to the tomb had been lifted 18 inch on one side and propped up by a piece of wood. Descending, they discovered two planks and three iron bars lying on the stairs. The floor of the vault was strewn with further planks and scented sawdust. In the, middle of the in the middle of the floor, three coffins lay open side by side. The body of the 25th Earl of Crawford was missing. It was the first instance of body snatching in the UK following the passing of the Anatomy Act, which had been drawn up in 1832 to protect the dead following the crimes of the notorious Burke and Hare. Officers from the Aberdeen Constabulary conducted a search of the 53,000 acre Dunnecht estate to no avail. Very soon the enormity of the task was realised. Not only was a vast part of the estate covered in dense woodland, but the poor weather threatened to hamper investigations. 
An appeal for assistance was issued to Scotland Yard, and four days after the discovery, Donald Swanson arrived by the afternoon train. A large crowd greeted him, with one local reporter commenting, Inspector Swanson was looked upon with considerable interest, if not with some awe, as the capture of Lefroy, and the interest was probably heightened by the circumstances that he is a native of the North and he has relatives in Aberdeen. Swanson's remit was to act as advisor to the local officers, not supersede them, but his experience in detective insight would be of great value. His brother John lived in Aberdeen at this time. John had served with the City of London Police for just one year before taking up the position of sergeant at the Edinburgh Constabulary and then at Aberdeen where he had risen to the rank of superintendent. Although John had retired two years earlier, Donald would no doubt have discussed this case with him and gained knowledge not only of the local area but also its criminal element. Further intensive searches followed, including one with the famous sleuth hound Morgan, who had led de detectives to the remains of Emily Holland and the subsequent arrest of her murderer William Fish in 1876. Not a single clue was discovered. After a week, the local police force was stood down, leaving Swanson as the only detective at Dunecht. Working with the new Earl and his solicitor, Swanson turned to his attention to the numerous letters which had been received, many from anonymous authors. It was revealed that the Earl's agent in Scotland, a solicitor named William Yates, had received a strange letter three months before the discovery of the open tomb in which the writer, going by the name Nabob, claimed to know something of the body's disappearance. And um, I'm sorry to say that the copy of the letter does appear in the Swanson archives. I'd love to have shown it to you this evening. Um, but the author would eventually be revealed to be one Charles Sutar, who had previously worked on the estate as a rat catcher. Despite a strong alibi, he was taken to Edinburgh's High Court on the 23rd of October 1882 and indicted. After hearing all the evidence in a single day, the following morning Lord Craighill began his summing up. He agreed with the belief that more than one person must have been involved in the robbery, given the difficulty in breaking into the tomb. But in the eyes of the law, the guilt of the prisoner was the same as if he'd acted alone. The jury retired for just 35 minutes before returning a guilty verdict and Sutar was sentenced to five years imprisonment. And the story of the Aberdeen body snatching case will be told in, in full in a future talk. Over the following years, Swanson's reputation grew. And as he progressed up the ladder, in, in January 1888, he was promoted to Chief Inspector at Scotland Yard CID, as one of six in the team at that time. And that year saw what is undoubtedly the most famous unsolved series of murders in history. A handwritten list, not shown here, um, is held in the, family, the Swanson family archives and details the potential victims of the Ripper. There's no doubt that Donald Swanson spent many hours studying the times, dates and locations shown on this list in an attempt to discover some link which might help find the killer. His involvement in the case began just a month after his landmark 40th birthday on the 15th of September 1888 after the murder of Annie Chapman. Commissioner Sir Charles Warren issued a memorandum to the newly appointed, newly appointed Assistant Commissioner Rob Anderson in which he expressed his determination to get to the bottom of the matter. Anderson uh, uh, Warren wrote, I am convinced that the Whitechapel murder case is one which can be successfully grappled with if it is systematically taken in hand. I go so far as to say that I could myself in a few days unravel the mystery, provided I could spare the time and give undivided attention to it. I feel therefore the utmost importance to be attached to putting the whole central office work in the hands of Chief Inspector Swanson, who must be acquainted with every detail. I look upon him for the time being as the eyes and ears of the commissioner in this particular case. He must have a room to himself and every paper, every document, every report and every telegram must pass through his hands. He must be consulted on every subject. I would not send any directions anywhere on the subject of the murder without consulting him. I give him the whole responsibility. Annie Chapman's murder was initially investigated by local H Division officers 
led by Detective Inspector Edmund Reed. They had already been baffled by the unsolved killings in the previous six months of Emma Smith, Martha Tabram and Mary Ann Nichols. Having seemingly exhausted leads into the series of murders at this point, Scotland Yard decided on a course of action. Inspector Frederick Aberline, not long promoted and transferred to Scotland Yard's central office himself, was seconded back to H Division to lead the inquiry on the ground. He'd served several years as Whitechapel's inspector and his experience would prove invaluable. Leading operations from Scotland Yard itself was Donald Swanson, appointed by Sir Charles Warren the day after Annie Chapman's funeral. It was Swanson who was tasked with identifying potential clues and assessing their worth and to ultimately devise a plan for the investigation. On the 19th of October, he submitted a report which outlined the police investigation at that moment. In a section regarding a leaflet that had been printed and distributed to the houses within H Division, appealing for information on any suspicious people, the detective wrote, 80,000 pamphlets to occupy were issued and a house-to-house -house inquiry made. Not only involving the result of inquiries from the occupiers, under this head also common lodging houses were visited and over 2,000 lodges were examined. Examined. Inquiry was also made by Thames Police as to sailors on board ships, in docks or river, and about 80 persons have been detained at different police stations in the metropolis and their statements taken and verified by police. Inquiry has been made into the movements of a number of persons estimated at upwards of 300, respecting whom communications were received by police and such inquiries are continuing. 76 butchers and slaughterers have been visited and the character of the men employed inquired into. This embraces all servants who had been employed for the past six months. Up to date, although the number of letters daily is considerably lessened, the other inquiries respecting alleged suspicious persons continues as numerous. There are 994 dockets besides police reports. This goes some way to showing the sheer volume of work undertaken by the Metropolitan Police at this time, with Swanson required to review and digest every single scrap of paper. He would later report to a government committee that during this time he worked at Scotland Yard from 9am to 11pm before heading to Whitechapel and meeting the H Division detectives as well as the City of London officers, often returning to his bed at 5am for a scant few hours rest. In early November came the most horrific attack yet when the body of Mary Jane Kelly was found dissected on her bed in Miller's Court. Dr Thomas Bond, the Divisional Surgeon for Scotland Yard, was asked to prepare what is seen as the first ever profile of a serial killer. It was this report which cemented the idea that Jack the Ripper had five victims, starting with Mary Ann Nichols and ending with Mary Kelly. The truth, of course, is that the true number of victims killed by the same hand is unknown. Certainly, following the murder of Mary Kelly, further attacks took place in the East End, beginning with the attempted murder of Annie Farmer later that November. Just before Christmas, the body of Rose Milet was found in a yard with a wound to the throat. Death was treated by the police as due to national, natural causes. Far more likely to be added to the list of Ripper victims was Alice McKenzie, found in Castle Alley with her throat cut in the early hours of 18th of July 1889. Her skirt had been pulled up and there was blood over her thigh and abdomen from a superficial wound which ran through beneath her left breast to her navel. Dr Bond believed her murder to have been the same style as the earlier killings and had he written his report after the murder of Alice Mackenzie, we may today be including her in the definitive list of Whitechapel victims. Two years later, in February 1891, PC Ernest Thompson was on his first unsupervised beat walking along Chamber Street in Whitechapel. He heard the sounds of a man's footsteps retreating and a few seconds later turned towards Swallow Gardens to find 32-year-old Frances Coles lying on the ground. Despite her throat being cut, she was still alive, just, and as PC Thompson looked, he saw her open and shut one eye. As police orders detected, dictated an officer remain with a victim should they be alive, Thompson was unable to pursue the footsteps and the probable killer of Francis Coles and possibly Jack the Ripper. Francis soon died from her wounds.
A local prostitute, she had spent two days working, uh, drinking with the ship's fireman named James Sadler. He'd been discharged from the SS Fez as she berthed in the East End docks, made his way to the short distance to Whitechapel to begin spending his pay. Sadly, he was swiftly taken into custody following Francis' death, and efforts were made to link him with the murders in 1888. But at the inquest, the jury heard that he had been so drunk on the evening of her death that he had been incapable of the deed, and returned a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. Four days later, at a hearing at Thames Magistrates Court, all charges were dropped against him. As he left the court, crowds of people people cheered his release. It might have been the end of the Whitechapel murders investigation, but not for Donald Swanson. As the officer with most knowledge on the case, for future attacks on women with a potential link to the Whitechapel crimes, no matter how remote, saw him sent from Scotland Yard to ascertain whether the Ripper had indeed returned. And over the following years, he investigated a number of possible cases. But by May 1895, it seems Donald Swanson was satisfied as to the fate of the real killer, with the Pall Mall Gazette in an article on the murders commenting, the theory entitled to most respect, because it was presumably based upon the best knowledge, was that of Chief Inspector Swanson, the officer who was associated with the investigation of all the murders, and Mr Swanson believed the crimes to have been the work of a man who is now dead. Just who did Swanson suspect? It would take more than 80 years to find out, and we'll look at that uh, shortly. The fact that Donald Swanson had been entrusted with several high-profile cases reflected his rise to the senior ranks of the CID. A further opportunity came in April 1896, when Superintendent John Shaw res resigned from his post after 11 years. His resignation left a vacancy for an important position within the CID, and very few candidates had the required ability and experience. It was the highest position to which the rank and file officer could be promoted, as the ranks of assistant, assistant commissioner and commissioner were filled by candidates from outside the police, usually with military experience. On the 28th of April 1896, it was announced in police orders that Donald Swanson had been selected. He was 47 years old and had just become the top detective in the country. Swanson's role as detective superintendent was very different to his days as an active inspector. It was his job now to ensure the smooth running of the CID, to oversee the running of cases under investigation by the department, and to liaise directly with his superior, Assistant Commissioner Robert Anderson. It was a period in which many long-serving officers of the CID severed their ties with Scotland Yard and decided to retire on a pension after serving the required 25 years service, and thus still in the prime of life. The result was the CID was filled with young, capable officers, such as Frank Frost and Alfred Leach, who would both go on to enjoy highly successful careers, taking the Criminal Investigation Department into the 20th century. But the training began under the watchful eye of Superintendent Donald Swanson. A description of his character appeared in a book written by Charles Windust, the, the, the crime investigator for the Weekly Dispatch. Calling him England's greatest detective, Windus wrote, Mr. Swanson is a Scotchman, a well-educated and cultured officer who has performed yeoman service in the department at Scotland Yard, to which he has, was attached and of which he is now the chief. There is an entire absence about this officer of the detective of fiction personified in the wonderful creation of Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, whose tall attenuated form will ever remain that of the idle detective of the century. Mr. Swanson is a handsome man of sturdy build, with a quick wit, a resourceful mind, a thorough man of the world, though not all the criminal experiences of many years have succeeded in altering an iota his kindly disposition. And the turn of the century ushered in a new era. Despite being discovered many years earlier, fingerprinting was finally adopted by the Metropolitan Police in 1901. In the same year, Queen Victoria died after 64 years on the throne. For Donald Swanson, the end was also drawing nigh. On the 1st of July 1903, he resigned his post. It had been 35 years and 102 days since he had written to the Metropolitan Police seeking a good opening, 
at a moderate salary. And it must be said he'd certainly made the most of his opportunity, gaining the highest rank he was able to achieve. He had joined the force in the last days of Commissioner Sir Richard Mayne, when officers had been sent for cutlass drill in order to battle the Fenian threat. And he was now retiring under Commissioner Edward Henry, as fingerprint evidence was about to change the life of a detective forever. Swanson's pension certificate, not shown here, was signed by Henry on the 3rd of July 1903. His conduct recorded as exemplary, his useful climbing over the King Street railway stations, uh, police station railings rather, seemingly forgotten. He was rewarded a pension of £280 a year. His entry in the record of police pensioners describes him as being 54 years old and having served 35 years and 64 days. At a farewell dinner hosted by fellow superintendents on the 12th of August 1903, his 55th birthday, Swanson was presented with a case of silver-plated serving spoons, which are still in the family. And for Swanson, retirement meant just that. Not for him lecturing tours or memoirs, despite the temptation given several of his contemporaries had already written there about their careers or were about to. It might well have been Swanson that Commissioner Edward Henry had in mind when in 1910 he expressed his fears to the Home Office following the publication of Swanson's former superior, Robert Anderson's autobiography. Henry wrote, the Commissioner of Police fears that his example may be followed by other ex-officers of the Criminal Investigation Department, whose departments were humbler, but who in some cases possess material for even more sensational autobiographies. Swanson's old colleague from Y Division in the 1870s, Frederick Aberline, also declined to release his memoirs. The retired detective did compile a 100-page scrapbook of newspaper cuttings relating to his career, and towards the end included a note entitled, Why I did not write my reminiscences when I retired from the Metropolitan Police, explaining, At the time I retired from the service, the authorities were very much opposed to retired officers writing anything for the press, as previously some retired officers had from time to time been very indiscreet in what they had caused to be published and to my knowledge had been called upon to explain their conduct. And in fact, they had been threatened with actions for libel. Apart from that, there is no doubt the fact that in describing certain crimes, you are putting the criminal classes on their guard. And in some cases, you may be absolutely telling them how to commit a crime. As for Swanson, his grandson James would later describe him as that breed of officer who did not seek publicity nor financial gain from his public office. He kept his knowledge to himself. Donald Sutherland Swanson died on Tuesday the 25th of November 1924 at his home, wife Julia by his side. Death was registered the following day, with the cause recorded as heart failure. The funeral took place at noon on the 29th of November. A crowd of mourners gathered under heavy grey clouds to pay their respects, including members of the CID from Scotland Yard and members of the local New Malden Police. The coffin was interred at Kingston Cemetery in a consecrated grave planted with a Lawson cypress tree and framed by a square stone border adorned with the words in loving memory of Donald Sutherland Swanson who died the 25th of November 1924 aged 76. In the days that followed Donald Jr wrote to Frederick Porter Wensley newly appointed in his father's old position at Scotland Yard. Dear Mr. Wensley, will you and your colleagues please accept my sincere thanks for the very beautiful wreath which you sent for the funeral of my father? I think my mother and I recognised all who attended, although we had forgotten names. We were most anxious to have stopped and spoken to, all, to most old friends of my father, but at the last I think the ceremony was just too much for my mother and I lost no time in getting her back home. It was indeed very gratifying to see that after all the years he had been away from Scotland Yard, my father was still kindly remembered, and particularly so that some of his old colleagues came such a long way to attend his funeral. But this isn't the end of the Donald Swanson story. 20 years after his death, his daughters Ada and Alice moved out of London during the war to Orchard Cottage near Dunstable, taking the family archive with them. Donald Swanson's granddaughter, Mary Birkin, 
recalled that the detective's papers and possessions were kept in an oak chest in the hallway with linen such as tablecloths left on top. The two sisters remained unmarried and lived together until Ada died at age 93 in 1976. Alice, the last surviving child of Donald and Julia Swanson, died aged 91 in November 1980. Her executor, ne nephew Jim Swanson, was assisted by his brother Donald in sorting her papers and effects. According to Mary, the brothers had little time to inspect the possessions at Orchard Cottage because of the need to empty the property, so they simply boxed everything up and removed it to Jim's home. It was here, on flicking through a copy of Sir Robert Anderson's memoirs, The Lighter Side of My Official Life, they noticed handwritten notes on some pages. They had discovered what is now known as the Swanson Marginalia, which revealed Swanson's private information on the identity of Jack the Ripper. Reading in more detail, Jim saw that his grandfather had made handwritten comments on four pages, and also the end paper, adding Eve, adding either adding to or correcting what was written on the printed page. The major discovery, however, was notes written on the margin of page 138, which carried his own superior Anderson's comments on the Whitechapel murders and his suspect, a local Polish Jew. Where Anderson had written, I will merely add the only person who ever had a good view of the murderer unhesitatingly identify the suspect the instant he was confronted with him, but he refused to give evidence against him, Swanson wrote underneath, because the suspect was also a Jew, and also because his evidence would com convict the suspect, and witness would be the means of murderer being hanged, which he didn't wish to be left on his mind. At some later date, using a different colour pencil, Swanson underlined Anderson's identified the suspect the instant he was identified with him, as well as his own comment, also a Jew, and added in the left-hand margin, and after this identification, which suspect knew, no other murder of this kind took place in London. Elaborating on this, on the end paper, he wrote, continuing from page 138, after the suspect had been identified at the seaside home, where he'd been sent by us with difficulty in order to subject him to identification, he knew he's, he knew he's identified. On a suspect's return to his brother's house in Whitechapel, he was watched by uh, police city CID by day and night. In a very short time, the suspect, with his hands tied behind his back, he was sent to Stepney Workhouse and into Coney Hatch and died shortly afterwards. Kuzminski was the suspect. Now, these notes made by Donald Sutherland Swanson represent the only written comment he, he made as the identity of Jack the Ripper and were intended for his own private use. But the revelation of the suspect being named and his fate posed more questions than answers. Just who was Kuzminski? A few months after the discovery, Jim Swanson decided to share the information with the public in order to hopefully obtain some long overdue recognition of his grandfather's work. An initial agreement with the News of the World came to nothing, and it was not until 1987 that the story finally appeared in the Daily Telegraph. It was the year before the centenary of the Ripper murders, and several books were being written to mark the occasion. One was Martin Fido's The Crimes, Detection and Death of Jack the Ripper, reviewed in the Sunday Telegraph on the 27th of September 1987. This stirred Jim, a lifelong Telegraph reader, into action. He wrote to its editor in the hope of getting some much overdue recognition for his grandfather, and also to put an end to all the fanciful conjecture concerning the killer. Telegraph's reporter Charles Nevin was tasked to write the story. Researching the background to Kuzminski in the seaside home, Nevin got in touch with Martin Fido, who had discovered an Aaron Kuzminski, who had been confined to Coney Hatch Asylum during his own researches. On the 19th of October 1987, the story of Swanson's margin notes was finally revealed to the public when the Telegraph printed Charles Nevin's story. In it, Nevin confirmed there could scarcely be a better source than Donald Swanson, but highlighted the problems with some of Swanson's comments, such as the date of Kuzminski's death, Aaron Kuzminski lived until 1919, while Swanson wrote the suspect died shortly after being committed to Coney Hatch Asylum, and the venue of the supposed identification. Although extensive research has been conducted into Aaron Kuzminski in the intervening years, 
including the discovery that at one time he lived, he lived with his family very close to one of the murder sites, nothing has been uncovered to link him with the killings or to explain why Swanson had been so badly wrong about when he died. Despite recent books and television documentaries focusing on Aaron Kosminski as the killer, it seems highly possible that Donald Swanson was referring to someone else in his marginalia. I do explore other possibilities for Swanson's suspect in my book, which is available from all good bookshops. And just to conclude, Donald Sutherland Swanson was one of this country's great detectives. Had he lived in more modern times, following the changing rules re regarding promotion from within the ranks, I feel that he may well have become, eventually become Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. As it is, perhaps more than anyone, it is he that epitomised the revolving uh, Victorian detective representing that era in the Metropolitan Police's history. But just as important is the way he went about his work, quiet yet firm, fair, kind and determined, modest despite his magnificent career. Thank you very much for listening. I'll just log on now to see if there's any questions. Probably where, where did the slides go to? See any questions at the moment? Telling off from Neil Bell, as expected. No questions. Well, I hope everybody's enjoyed it. Um, I will try and fix the. Uh, I just realised it's a sideways presentation. Oh dear. Uh, that, John. Um, I'll try and fix the things for next week, where I'll be talking about. Donald Swanson, the Brighton Railway murder. I hope you enjoyed it and um, I will see you all soon. Thank you.